It's just gone nine o'clock here on SENZ Extra Time. Our number here, 0800 150 811. 0800 150 811. Or you can text us, double eight double three. And uh, joining us now on the phone out of the UK is uh, the head rugby writer for the Daily Mail, uh, Chris Foyer. Uh, good morning to you, Chris. Good evening, our time. Um, when I initially got in touch, it was like, let's talk about where England are at post the Six Nations with the Rugby World Cup on the horizon. But shock horror, the All Blacks have made an announcement and they've named uh, the new All Black coach post-World Cup. Uh, your reaction, sir? It's funny because the two things you just mentioned actually sort of uh, cross over a little bit, given that Scott Robertson came around these parts for an interview uh, with the RFU as well. But I think this was the one he wanted. It was pretty clear all along that he had his eyes on the All Blacks job and most of the people probably in New Zealand, I would imagine, most of the people in this part of the world think he's the right man for that job. You can't argue with his record with the Crusaders. We get used every year to seeing the clips coming from the other side of the world of Scott Robertson breakdancing, which means they've won it again. Um, so, you know, he's he's a phenomenal coach. There's a, there's a lot of players, I have to say, probably sort of recent England players, uh, a, a lot of people in these parts who've talked about what sort of an outstanding rare coach he is and that actually they wished England, <clears throat> England had gone for him and really tried to make him their coach. So... I think he's very highly regarded. Uh, everyone sees him as innovative and successful and a, a, a sort of free spirit who really gets players playing for him. Um, so it's a good appointment. Now, what that means for Ian Foster in the short term is another matter. I think that's quite complicated. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the, the feeling here was they just needed to get it done because it was clouding every conversation, um, and it's done now. So now the NZR want everybody to put it to bed. We know what's happening and just get behind Foster and the team. Uh, do you think that's going to be problematic? I just think it was quite telling that it, even when New Zealand Rugby um, put out a statement um, a little while back saying, you know, basically we're, we're getting this sorted, there's going to be an announcement soon. They even said in their own statement, we understand that this isn't ideal, that basically there's no right solution here. And I think all the countries struggle with that a bit now. Do you do you get your business done in advance of the tournament or wait to see how the tournament unfolds and then react? But already some other people you might have wanted have already got sort of deals lined up somewhere else. So it's not a it's not a perfect scenario. And I think if you're Ian Foster, you've spent a long time people questioning whether you're doing the job properly, whether you're the right man for the job. There was a lot of pressure last last year, and frankly, he was very close to losing the job by all accounts. Um, so I, I just think it's, for him, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because deep down, he knows that he's been questioned and doubted. They've had a wobble. They've sort of come through the other side of that. Joe Schmidt's influence seemed to increase and I just don't know whether he, as the sort of figurehead of the organisation at the moment, if you like, really deep down feels that he's, he's sort of truly backed and believed in, not only by his bosses, but by the public and maybe potentially by some of the players too. So I, I just think it's probably the best thing just to deal with all the speculation and get it sorted out. But I'm not sure whether it's actually going to help the All Blacks in terms of the... Uh, the coaching regime at the, at the World Cup coming up this year. No, it's going to be an interesting one uh, to see how it does track from here. I mean, you know, he did say that he wasn't going to put himself forward because he felt that it was clear that, you know, the public didn't want him, which I thought was interesting. So he's going to go out on his sword, as it were, or on a shield. Um, you mentioned at the top there, Chris, that 
uh, Scott Robinson had interviewed with England Rugby. Now, we knew that he had been in the England camp when uh, England were down playing Australia in the in the mid-season. He'd, he'd spent some time a, ahead of the third test there, and we know that he'd been up with Eddie Jones, uh, I think, around when he was coaching the Barbars and, and things like that. But you said he interviewed with England. Do you know what that was for? Yeah, I mean, he, he was he was here with uh, Ronan O'Gara, Scott Robertson, Steve Borthwick interviewed for, uh, to my understanding is they were all interviewed by the RFU as they were working out their plans for the, their own succession plans, their own um, head coach succession plans, which then changed in a hurry because the RFU had this idea that for once, you know, we we're talking before about what's the right model? Do you get it, get your business dealt with before a World Cup or after it in terms of, you know, succession planning for the head coach? The RFU have been known to be absolutely shambolic on this subject. So I think they felt they really had to get their act together early. So they were planning early for the succession after the World Cup. So with that in mind, in October, I think it was early November, when, when Scott Robertson and Ronan O'Gara were working together with the Barbarians, um, my understanding is they were both interviewed and so was Steve Borthwick. And whether or not it could specifically be seen as a job interview, I think it was more initial conversations because they didn't think at that point they were going to be appointing a head coach in December. Then the whole thing changed in a hurry because they sacked Eddie Jones um, and then they had to fast forward the process. Now, um, the chief exec of the RFU, Bill Sweeney, basically said after appointing Borthwick, he was our man all along. But they also made it clear that they considered a lot of people and spoke to various people. I actually asked him on the day they announced Borthwick, what did he make of Scott Robertson as a candidate? And he sort of dodged that one, gave it a quick swerve sidestep to get away because he didn't fancy engaging on that. Clearly, he's not part of the process to give out such information to the likes of me. But basically, it was seen that Scott Robertson was part of that process. But it felt all along as if he was sort of allowing himself to be talked into the England equation as a, as a candidate. But really, that was not what it was all about. It was all about the All Blacks job. Mm. And that's uh, that's where where he's uh, ended up, where we've ended up. Um, what about where you've ended up, mate? Um, I know that uh, Steve Borthwick, you know, lost that opening game uh, to the Scots. Uh, they managed to get wins over the Italians and the Welsh. But that... Big loss at Twickenham, the biggest loss ever at Twickenham uh, to France, and then losing a tricky tie away to the Grand Slam champions in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day. Couldn't have been a worse combination of factors for England, I wouldn't have thought. Where, where do you feel like you are? Well, I, I actually I wrote a piece for yesterday's paper saying basically England are at performance base camp. I think what they did... What they did in Dublin was simply do the bare minimum, you know, box ticking exercise for a test team. They fronted up and fought like crazy, looked like they would not lie down in the face of a superior team. And frankly, that was pretty much it. So in terms of a rebuild process, there's no sign of a great sort of a, a great sudden spike, a great sudden progression so far. You know, often a new coach comes in, a new regime comes in and there's a bit of a bounce effect. You, you can see it in various countries. It certainly happened with England under Stuart Lancaster. It happened under Eddie Jones famously. Uh, it happens in various countries. Warren Gatland, when he first took over Wales, there's just new coach comes in, bangs some heads together, gets them all fired up, and there's an instant reaction. Well, Steve Borthwick and Kevin Sinfield and have come in, gone through that process, and there's not been an instant reaction. It's. Uh, I, I think the concern is that they thought they were going to lay some very basic sort of 
um, groundwork for the the building they're trying to build, and and then France came along and stuck 50 on them at Twickenham. So I, I think that's incredibly worrying. It's led to a lot of hand-wringing and concerns about the overall state of the game here and how the system is failing and the, the lack of integration between clubs and union. You know, New Zealand and Ireland are held up as the sort of the models of how you do these things right, and England, in comparison, is a bit of a, a shambolic mess you know, this financial problem. So it's, it's led to a lot of navel-gazing and concerns about the bigger picture. But in, in the short term, they reacted reasonably to the horror of that defeat against France. They pulled themselves together and they, they gave Ireland a right go. You know, it was, they, they, they weren't threatening to carve them open. They weren't this great electric attacking side, but they at least fronted up, stared them in the eye and said, come on, you know, sort of over our dead bodies. And they really fought. And that was encouraging. But to me, that's a minimum. That, that should be what they're doing every time. And I just think the concern is they're way behind France and Ireland. They're probably way behind the All Blacks and the Springboks. And I would argue that actually by the time he gets them to the World Cup, Eddie Jones will have the Wallabies in a pretty decent shape as well. And they might be in England's flight path in Marseille in the quarterfinals. So I don't think England at this stage are heading towards the World Cup with any confidence of challenging whatsoever. Now, it seemed to me, having talked to you, having talked to Martin Gillingham and a, and a, and a few others, that Steve Borthwick uh, would, as you've put it, do the basics. You know, I mean, he was very much a, a forwards-oriented coach, um, and it would be uh, old-school ten-man rugby, uh, win, win, win the battle up front, kick for position, and then and then set piece, which is great if you can be the best at that, right? But. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that they're the best at that, as we saw um, against the French and, and and possibly even against the Irish. Is there the cattle out there for him to turn that around, do you think? There are, there are definitely. There, there, there are players who can play the game a very different way. You know, I mean, the, the, the whole... It's really simplistic, but as in a lot of countries, there's this whole endless fascination about the debate about who wears the number 10 shirt because that symbolises, if you like, what the identity of the team is. I know that I know you've had it in New Zealand. There's, it's probably slightly different in New Zealand with Moonga and, and Barrett in terms of who's wearing 10 because you're just comparing different sort of creative attacking talents. But in a lot of countries, they're seen as, the, if you like, the safer bet and the more daring option and England have got a really extreme version of that. And there was so endless sort of discussion and debate around whether he's going to give Marcus Smith another chance. No, it's back to Owen Farrell. And in fairness to Owen Farrell, who, who doesn't always get a lot of praise here, he was very good in Dublin for what they needed, a really sort of snarling, confrontational, fired-up sort of... Uh, I don't know, he just imposed himself on that game and you came out of that game thinking he'll be the 10. The, the, the sort of debate has been taken away a bit. But it's, it's just a shame that they have the tools to do things differently. They do have Marcus Smith, who, with the right framework around him, with a decent pack to get him on the front foot, and with some runners outside who can cause trouble, which England do have. There are players like that in the Premiership. Then England could play a different way, but they won't. They absolutely won't. They will. They, they will go to the Leicester playbook, which won Leicester the title. They'll play a pressure game, a high, it's sort of a pressure plus. I think I heard someone calling it, where it's just kicking the ball in the air, chasing hard, making tackles, aggression, 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 physicality, fitness, all those sort of basic things that can be drilled into a team, which doesn't require sort of X factor talent. 
And that Borthwick will make sure that the whole summer is spent getting them to a point where they're ferocious and horrible and relentless and competitive, but it won't be pretty. Now, whether after the World Cup, depending on how it goes, there is then a determination to expand the repertoire, I don't know. I mean, frankly, Nick Evans is in there, the ex-All Black is in there um, as an attack coach. He's been working with them during the Six Nations, and I'd love to say I could see his fingerprints all over it, but I can't. Uh, a lot of people saw glimpses, and then they went back to a very basic plan. So... Look, I don't think it's going to be pretty. It's going to be very basic. And and if he drills them all summer and they're fit enough, which he's demanding that they come into camp fit and they can work and work and work on it, they will have a plan. They will not be underprepared. He is very meticulous. But I just don't think people are going to be dancing in the stands watching them. You mentioned the World Cup quarterfinal, potentially Eddie Jones and the Wallabies. Um, I've raised it looking at the group. Uh, you know, Japan under Tony Brown and, and Jamie Joseph have, have done some very good things. They pushed the French uh, pretty hard not long ago. Uh, the Argentinians have beaten England at Twickenham in the in the last 12 months as well. Um, Samoa Chile might not pose, pose the same threats, but is it a guarantee that England get out of that group? No. No, definitely not. Uh, I, I actually think, I mean, as you say, Argentina beat England at Twickenham start of the last autumn, start of the downward slope to Eddie Jones losing his job. I mean, they battered Japan um, the week later. So if you take that as a guide, then you would think they will probably be able to get through that pool. But I just think it's all about pressure. If, if they go to the first game in Marseille and there are limitations in their game plan and they think they can front up and smash the Pumas, the Pumas have got a seriously physical team. And if the Pumas do a number on them at the set piece and at the breakdown, and they have a, a track record of being capable of that with a good preparation time themselves, Michael Checker in there is a canny, you know, canny character who, can, who will know exactly what's needed that week to prepare for England. I could just see a scenario where England lose that game and then they've got a week to get ready to play Japan and the pressure will be off the chart because win or bust, it's basically three teams going for two places. They lose that game and they're pretty much there and, and they're gone, basically. So, look, I think in reality, England will qualify from the pool and it's just whether they go through first or second. If they go through first, you get Wales or maybe Fiji at a push, Georgia, probably Wales. Um, now they're capable of beating Wales, but then Warren Gatland with a three-month camp before the World Cup, he's canny, he knows what he's doing and I'm sure he'll get Wales into a position where they can pose a threat. So it, it all hinges on that first game. The, the whole thing's front-loaded. England go to Marseille and play Argentina. The result of that will set the tone for the whole tournament. If they win that, the whole thing opens up for them. But I could just see a scenario where they lose that game and then even if they get through the pool, well, there's the script they face. Probably, you would imagine, face Australia and Eddie Jones in Marseille. And I just think that there's something written in the stars about that 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 comes to pass. And then I just think they'll be seeing him in their nightmares that week, Eddie Jones, because you can, can just imagine how he'll relish that occasion if it came to that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. All good, Chris. Well, hey, listen, mate, I really appreciate your time. I know you've got to get the kids to school. Uh, just one last thing. <laughs> uh, what have you made of uh, of Steve Hansen uh, was asked uh, about uh, Ireland winning the Grand Slam and, uh, and, and France hosting the World Cup and... Uh, He's still very much employed by the NZR, isn't he, with his re reply about, well, you know, 
Ireland with that record as Grand Slam champions, if they don't win the World Cup, they'll be considered chokers and said the same thing about, I, about the French as hosts. I just think Steve Hansen is living his best life now. He's just having a whale of a time, isn't he? He's got the medals. He's, he's sat there on his throne and he can just enjoy himself. And he just loves, he, he just loves gently stirring the pot, looking as relaxed and laid back as, you know, any man could do. He could just be out having a nice day at the races and just sort of, you know, offering a, a, a few views to a friend. You just, I just, I just find it hilarious. I'm not saying it in a bad way. I like Steve Hansen. I'll get on well with Steve Hansen. I just think he's having a great time because he can just be relaxed. He's done it, hasn't he? He's, he's done what you need to do in the sport. And he can just enjoy himself. And and look, he's he's right. It's mischievous, and he, he uses some terminology designed to sort of uh, be a bit niggly in there and stir things up a bit. But you, you can't argue with the logic. Like the, the, this is new territory. Ireland have never been in this situation before. But actually, they, I mean, I was there for all over the weekend, and there there's such a sense of excitement and euphoria there. Like the atmosphere is incredible, just not just at the stadium, the whole weekend, St. Patrick's weekend. They've got this great team. They, I mean, frankly, they stumbled over the line. England made them look ordinary for long periods, but they are some team and Andy Farrell is some coach and I'm delighted for them and it's going really well for them. But that comes with a pressure. You've got a target on you. That's fair enough. That goes with the territory. They can't just sort of quietly ease into the tournament under the radar saying, oh, you know, we'll take a crack at it. No, no, they're the ones up the top there to be, you know, to be aimed at. So I think he's right. I, I completely agree. There is there is pressure on France because the, the whole nation will go completely bonkers about that tournament. They're the hosts. They've got DuPont. They've got all these superstars. And everyone will really think it's theirs to win. There is pressure on Ireland because, you know, subject to the quirks of the rankings before then, they will pretty much go in as the number one ranked side and the Grand Slam champion. So they are the sort of kingpins of the North. They're going to be up there in, in, in the mix. And Steve Hansen is right. He knows what it's like. That goes with a certain expectation and pressure. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I smile and find it funny. And good luck to Steve Hansen. He's enjoying himself, having a little stir, enjoying and watching the reaction. And, and I totally agree. Good stuff, Chris. I really appreciate your time, mate. Keep up uh, the good work at the mail, and uh, we'll talk to you in soon, eh? Speech is soon. Uh, Chris Foy with us there. Uh, he is the chief rugby writer at the Daily Mail in the UK. Uh, well worth reading his stuff. Uh, he makes some really good points from an English point of view. Doesn't give it the old Stephen Jones either. He's uh, quite the quite the realist. Uh, 19 past nine now on Extra Time here on SENZ. Uh, keen to get your thoughts on a few things there. The first and foremost for those is, uh, well, we've got a, an, an all-black coach post-World Cup. We know who that is going to be. Scott Robertson is the new All Blacks coach at the end of the World Cup. Your reaction to that? Your reaction to it being announced now? Who do you think he will have in his team? That announcement sure to come. I know Breakfast is supposed to have uh, uh, Scott Robertson on tomorrow morning at five past eight. Is that right, Joe? Five past eight? Greg Samunda, yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the Breakfast Boys are going to have uh, Razor on at five past eight tomorrow morning. Joe worked hard all day on lining that up uh, with the New Zealand <laughs> Rugby Union. So well done to you, Joe. Um, and looking forward to, to hearing what he says. But who do you think he'll have in his team? What do you think about the announcement? Are you happy with it? And uh, I guess the, the big question is, 
does it take the pressure off Ian Foster now that we know who it is and that conversation can stop? Keen to hear from you. 0800 150 811. 0800 150 811. Or you can text us double eight double three. It's 9.24 here on SCNZ Extra Time. Ricardo Ball with you through till 10 o'clock. The phone lines are open 0800 150 811. 0800 150 811. You can give us a call or you can text us on double eight double three as well. Uh, we've just had Chris Foy on, the head rugby writer of the, the Daily Mail in the UK, talking about not only Scott Robertson and his appointment, but also where England are at ahead of the World Cup. And interesting, uh, Joe, to come out of that chat is Chris Foy talking about how Razor interviewed with England Rugby when he was up there for the Barbarians game. Yeah, it is interesting. It, you you have to think, do you think Razor seriously considered moving to England and coaching the England Rugby team? Or was he just using it as a chip just to push New Zealand rugby a bit and say, come on, you know, I'm in demand. I mean, probably a mixture of both. I think he's a quite open-minded person, you know. I do think he probably seriously uh, considered taking the England rugby job if it was offered for him, and he felt like it was the right spot to move, you know. I mean, it's almost like Baz. Baz obviously loves his country. You know, he probably always wanted to coach with the Black Caps, but then he had this great offer over in England. And I'm sure Razor had a similar mindset, but it, did, it didn't end up happening, you know. Whether that's RFU didn't want it or he didn't want it or they just weren't the right fits. And, he, and then he was just, I think he was fully like set on, okay, I want to be the next All Backs coach, you know? And I don't think he would have really considered anything else. Yeah, I think, yeah, you make a good point. I, I think he uh, has said that he wants to coach overseas at some point. So that's, he's got a bucket list of obviously things that he wants to tick off. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And maybe, like you say, that was a ploy. That was a ploy to get a reaction out of New Zealand rugby and to and to push the boat out there on that front. Um, so what do you make of it? What do you make of Scott Robertson being announced now? I think they've made the right decision, right? Because they got caught short after the last World Cup. There were all these options they thought they were going to have. Dave Rennie, Jamie Joseph, Tony Brown, uh, etc. And uh, they were all gone by the time the World Cup was over. And they, they were really kind of stuck with, at the time it was Razor, I think, who had... Only two seasons by that point at the Crusaders, maybe maybe going into his third, and the uh, you know the assistant coach, and that that was they they had the choice of the two. I mean, did they make the right decision though? Would it have actually mattered if they waited another six months? I mean, they've kind of already screwed screwed the pooch on it. Like you know, they did open themselves wide open for him to leave. He didn't leave. He didn't get the England job. There really was nothing else going. You know, he he could have got another job post World Cup, but I think it, he made it pretty clear that he after, that he wanted to stay and have the All Blacks position. You know, they only really did it because. Everyone was upset. Like, obviously, they, they didn't want Razor to be upset to come into the job. He would probably resent them if he had to wait another six months. And Fozzie was already resenting them hardcore. So they were kind of they were kind of forced into this position. I don't know if they made the right choice. They just made the only choice they could make. Yeah, well, that's interesting you say that because there was some talk that uh, obviously well, there was a lot of talk about Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown. Their job, at, uh, with their contract with Japan finishes after the World Cup. That would have worked, um, mm, you know. So that's that is something. I mean, there's a bit, a bit of talk about a few different people uh, putting their hands up for the job as well. Uh, we've just had text come through actually from Jamie and Greymouth. Thank goodness, Razor Ray has finally been given the job. We had him come and speak to my husband's school students last year, and you could see just what uh, 
makes him so special. He cares and wants to bring the best out in every single person he coaches. Also, how good to get him on a four-year contract so we won't have to deal with the situation that was given to Fozzie uh, with the initial two-year deal. Really was the catalyst for the mess we've had since. Ooh, Razor Ray from Jamie and Graham. Thanks for your text. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a fair point too. That's another conversation uh, that we could have. I mean, Joe Schmidt was another name that was apparently thrown in there, might have put his hand up. Um, that was never confirmed nor denied on that. But maybe this changes the way we think about it uh, from an organisational point of view. Maybe we don't think in World Cup cycles. Maybe you think in cycles around the World Cup. So you do, it's, it's the two years before to the two years after rather yeah. than, than, you know, World Cup to World Cup because it gives you a bit more breathing room. That makes a lot more sense. I think I think rugby and uh, like and New Zealand sports and the way of thinking is probably opening up and seeing how everyone does it on a global stage. You know, like you you do need that ramp up. I mean, I, I it actually do you know why they don't do that? I mean, it makes zero sense. Maybe it's, it's just an exhaustion factor. Like after you finish the World Cup, you might just want to like that's it. You know, put a line under it and and this all this emotional build up from the fans and stuff, all this pressure. And then I think both, like, you know, New Zealand rugby and the coach says, OK, it's time to call it. That's probably why they don't do it usually. It would it would feel a little odd. You do two years leading up to the World Cup, you suck <laughs> or whatever, or, or, or you win it, and then you do another two years and then you, like, retire. That seems a little anticlimactic. Like, I can see why they wouldn't do that. Well, I mean, you're not stuck to, into, into that four-year cycle. You can still extend True. beyond the four-year yeah. cycle. Maybe you have a review period after uh, the World Cup. That might be another way of looking at it. But I just think what it does do is I think two years is enough time to prepare a team for a World Cup. You don't need four. And I think that's been the old mm. saying is that it's a four-year build-up to a World Cup. You don't need four years to build up to a World Cup. It's far too long. So much can change in that time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but like, for example, could you have seen like Graham Henry doing another two years, you know, after winning the World Cup in 2011? Like, you know, probably not, right? Like, Well, he'd already been there by that time, remember, because he was in charge in 2007 mm, as true, well. So true. he had already been there for a while. That's what I mean. And same with Steve Hansen. Steve Hansen had been there for, for a period of time. They weren't four-year cycles. They were there for longer periods. Yeah, no, that that's true. I, I, I think I'm more saying is like, it's also up to those coaches wanting, are willing to stay after, after the World Cup to like, so so you don't just throw like another coach in there. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they, they might not want to stay those extra two years, or or or, or they you know they may just want to like, I mean they might want to leave when they want to leave. You know that 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 is the issue. Yeah. You're kind of depending on the coach, the coach before them to willingly hand over at a, at a convenient time for the other coach to come in. And you know, coach the team before the World Cup, I guess. Yeah. And I think that that's just where you've got to be sensible. You've got to treat it like a business to mm. an extent, um, and you've got to have contracts that have clauses in them, right? So yeah. you've got this World Cup coming up in two years' time. Uh, your contract has got another two, an option of another two years. Yeah, yeah. But there's a review process after the World Cup, and then if you go through that review process, then maybe that's when you extend further. But I yeah, it makes think, sense. Yeah. I think it, it does make sense um, to do it that way and then it takes the pressure off it all being about the World Cup, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't end up back in this situation again. But uh, keen to hear from you. 0800 150 811. 0800 150 811. Or text us double eight double three. That is the Temper Bed Post text machine. Here through till 10 o'clock for your calls on Razor and what you think of that situation and how do you think the poems might go as well? But a Schnaden Freud's always fun. 28 away from 10.
On SENZ, this is extra time and time for some uh, motorsport chat with our good friend Eric Thompson. How are you doing, ET? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Ricardo. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Good. And I, I know we've said it before, but he just keeps proving it time and time again. Scott McLaughlin, is there anything he can't drive? I'm, I'm beginning to think he would dominate in keg racing as well, you know? Oh, he's got a long way to go to be a Van Gisbergen yet. <laughs> you know, Van Gisbergen gets on the podium in a World Rally Championship. He's a New Zealand Grand Prix winner and a single-seater. Supercars winner, international block on endurance racing in GTs. He's won Bathurst 12 hours, Bathurst 1000. He's won in the state at the Daytona 24-hour. Mate, Scott McGlock has got the potential. But, you know, Dan Gisbergen, to me, is truly the guy that you can stick in anything with an internal combustion engine, and he will probably win. Well, t- tell us about but, the uh, the 12-hour of Sebring race at, at Florida on the weekend that, that Scott uh, did um, uh, compete at, do well at, got on the podium there with uh, Tower Motorsports because, I mean, I know it was an LPM2 class, but still, it's, it's a pretty good effort, isn't it? I mean, it's a really, really good effort. He's tested with them before. Um, but, you know, it's that age-old adage in probably any sport where, where it's a race, like, you know, like athletics or rowing or... Um, speed skating or anything that involves, you know, lots of close quarter racing. He, um, I think he was, le- he was leading the class, and he they were about six outright. And it was about, I think it was twenty minutes or half an hour to go. The three um, category one cars that they they kind of prototypes or um, LMP cars um, took each other out. So suddenly he goes from six to third. And, and ends up third outright. But, you know, that's just motorsport. So he did really, really well to be in the position to pounce when he needed to. You know, and that's all about race craft, staying out of trouble and doing doing really, really well. So um, it was a good result for him. Uh, Scott Dixon and his team um, in the Cadillac didn't do so well. They had issues very, very early on and lost a whole lot of track time and track positions. But it's funny enough, um, Ricardo, that on the Friday or Saturday morning our time, they had the um, the W, the first round of the World Endurance Championship at Sebring. On the Friday, they had the 1,000 miles of Sebring. And that had um, Earl Bamber in a Cadillac, because he's now racing with Ganassi Racing, and um, Brendan Hartley with the Toyota Gazoo Racing. Um, Hartley ended up second, and um, Earl Bamber ended up fourth or fifth. I can't quite remember. But they were in contention all the way too. So for people of endurance racing, what a hell of a weekend to be at Sebring. Yeah, I reckon. All the big all the Kiwis were there, that's for sure. Oh yeah, we had um Jackson Evans who's in uh, one of the GT classes and um Tom Blomquist, although he now races under a UK racing licence. Um, you know, he was he was raised in New Zealand, he was racing there too, so yeah. Good outing, mate. They're taking over the world. Yeah, taking over the world. Taking over the world, E.T. You predicted it a long time ago. <laughs> I might mention it, actually. There's a whole crop of young fellas coming up. Yeah, you And did. they're all just, you know, they're all standing tall now, which is fantastic.
Yeah, well, mate, that's fantastic. All right, hey, let's uh, let's talk some uh, F one. Uh, I see Lewis Hamilton now, uh, and and you alluded to some of this last time we chatted, but he's saying that Red Bull are faster now than Mercedes have ever been. Um, obviously, that might balance out through the season after what you told me last time. But uh, okay. is that is that Lewis Hamilton just throwing up a bit of a red herring to take the uh, take the heat off the team at the moment? Oh yes, mate. He just bought dusted off his violin, playing a woe is me tune. I mean, you know, his, all last season, his teammate, George Russell, you know, beat him. And this year so far, George Russell, his teammate, is beating him. And even Hamilton had the audacity to say in a post-race interview, he said, oh, maybe I should have actually taken some of George's car set up. And I'm going, man, you're too arrogant to do that. But, um, you know, it's, like every, it's not just me. Everybody said it. Hamilton was so good for so long because he had day V by a country mile best car on the grid for six years by, by charge. Now, now, it's like in anything, everybody's caught up. You know, I, I'll use the all-black analogy. Um, you know, they were dominant for years and all of a sudden they had an almighty crash until you have to change your thinking, change your policy, do something innovative. And that's what Aston Martin... Look at Aston Martin. And really interesting, Lawrence Stroll said... It would be a three-to-five development journey. They're in their third year now with him, and look what and look what they're doing. Alonso's on the podium again. Yeah, I mean, it and was, uh, you know, brilliant. Brilliant. No, I mean, it wasn't was that it wasn't without controversy that though, was it? And Alonso's certainly had a bit of a crack at um, the FIA. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious when he just said, "Well, hey, I was on the podium. I sprayed the champagne." I held the trophy up a lot, so I was there. Everybody knew I got third, and then they took it away and said, eh, it's three points. I can make that up." <laughs> and then he had, we went on to have a pop at the FIA, and he said, "Why didn't they tell me if I had thirty laps to go?" He said, "I knew I was nine seconds in front of Russell." He said, "I could have easily pushed for another three to four seconds, which means if he got a ten-second penalty, he would still get in third." So he had some pretty valid points, but also the deck touch in the car was so minuscule. And then um, Aston Martin found footage for the last two or three years without every other team with the car jack just cresting the underneath of the car. You don't get any advantage just pushing the thing underneath. So rightly so they have it. But they've got to look at these pernickety rules. And it was all the other teams that told them that. It wasn't the stewards didn't see it. So, you know. More politicking in F1? Oh, Lord, yes. So, um, but um, but the other thing is, I we touched on last time is everybody's complaining about the Red Bull colour. They can't do any aero testing. They're yeah. done for the whole year. That package has to stay as it is. And you wait, mark my words, for the next three to four races, race weekend, they will not be as dominant as they are now. Aston Martin will get closer. <clears throat> the Ferraris will sort their aero package out. Mercedes will get better, although Toto's will say, oh, he's got such a horrible car, I'll have to get them to build a whole new one. Yeah, right, you just got your package wrong. So, and they're allowed to test. So, but the thing for Red Bull and Christian Horner is they're going to have to grab as much points as they, they can over the next two to three races. Like, again, try and get the one-twos so they get a really big buffer in the Constructors' Championship. Because that's all they want. All the teams really for them, the team principals, is, winning the Constructors' Championship. They're not overly concerned. Yeah, They like it that their driver that they pick wins races, but for them it's Constructors' points because that's where the money comes from. 
it's hundreds of millions of dollars up for grabs in that constructors championship. There's no money up for grabs winning the drivers championship. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it's it's all about it's all about the uh, the manufacturers getting around. Um, yeah. Do you do you see Mercedes catching up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll get it through. I mean, oh, the Fox You know, they're second in the constructors constructors championship. You know, George Russell is getting the most out of that car. And if they do, by some good luck or good management, manage to sort Hamilton's car out, um, he'll be up there thereabouts again. So, but they've just got to give him a good car. Uh, and what about Ferrari? They are they sitting in fourth? Oh. <laughs> they can just never get it. Ferrari are Ferrari's own worst enemy. They have been since Michael Schumacher left. And people go, well, you know, why? Why? Why was Schumacher so successful? Because he marched in there. And just he didn't care whether there was a long family history of Ferrari. He just told them all what to do. Because, you know, he had the pedigree, he had the presence, he had the gravitas. And he just marched in there and said, right, no, we're not doing that, we're doing this. And boom, was it five world championships in a row? Yep. Can you imagine little old Charles Leclerc marching up to team principal going, no, we're not doing that, no, no, stupid idea. This is what we'll do. That's what they need, a driver that can actually march up to all those bickering Thing. You know, it's like any family-run business in the third generation of Ferrari family running it. They all think they know better than everybody else. That's their problem. Who do they get? And they got the guy from Alfa Romeo. He's now the team principal because they got rid of the other guy who made some really appalling strategy decisions. I mean, you just have to watch the drive to survive, season five, I think it is, to see how Leclerc lost so many races because they put the wrong tyres on, they didn't pull him in or, you know, they wouldn't listen to Leclerc. So, so he, he got the archer. He got, so they yeah. got this new guy. Yeah, all right. Uh, but, I mean, you you mentioned a, a driver who can who could walk in and sort that out. Is there a driver like that? I mean, is it just easy to say Max Verstappen? But... Yes, Verstappen could. He's got the pedigree, he's got world titles. Alonso probably would. But he's already been at Ferrari and it didn't sort of work out too well. Mind you, that at the top of the car. But in that grid, because everybody's going for youth. You know, and you can't really. Oh, Carlos Sainz, maybe, maybe. Um, but he's a bit of a quiet bloke. He, you know, he's not a Mr. Grumpy. You have to be a bit of a Mr. Grumpy. It's like when Raikkonen went to Ferrari, all of a sudden they got quite good. Because he wouldn't have listened to an engine. You know, remember what he, that great clip when he was at Lotus and the engineers saying, you know, just look after your tyres. And, and um, I think it was a praise or somebody. It's closing. And the guy, and Raikkonen just says, shut up. I know what I am doing. <laughs> See, guys like that just say, go on, get out of my ear. Let me do the driving. So you sort of need somebody like that at Ferrari um, to actually tell all the bickering to pull their heads in. But, um, Be a matter of... You know, which I feel, well, yeah, yeah but... it's a lot of the time... Sorry, Ricardo. No, I was going to. Yeah, no, I was just going to say. I, I guess it's just a matter of time, right? Until they, they they finally get that right, they they clean house and and get someone that can do that. I, I mean, one thing I do notice, there are no Italian drivers anymore either. Uh, I don't know if that has any impact. <laughs> oh, I mean, they'd love to have an Italian driver in there. It'd be like, yeah, they'd want at least one Italian driver in there, even if, even if they was sort of midfield. Yeah, because imagine them all going off. But I mean, they've got the basics of a really good car. It'll take a small tweak, and if they start winning the odd race, it'll all be rosy in the camp, and they'll all be happy chappies. And 
and you know, happy girls and everybody, and everybody will be patting each other on the back, and it'll all be harmonious until they start losing again, and then it's all jump out, jump out, not jump out, jump out, jump out, jump out. Ah, dear, you're actually selling drive to survive to me. I might have to go watch it now. I might have to go watch it, Eric. Um, it, it's actually season five. I mean, still the best one is season one, right? Because it was a, it was so different and innovative. Um, five's better than four. The four had all these family shots of people in their humongous houses and all that sort of stuff and what Corner's wife, the ex-girl band woman, can't remember her name, of her riding poonies <laughs> and talking about racing and you're sort of going, what? It's not a woman's weekly lifestyle magazine. But this one's gone a bit back to the basics. So, um, But there's still a lot of sort of off-track stuff. So I think the pure enthusiast it's sort of lost that pure on-track drama thing and you're delving into, you know, the team principal. Gunther Steiner, my favourite almost ever team principal, is by far the most honest and straight-up team principal. He's as funny as they come, Ricardo, with his comments. All right. He I... doesn't take anything. I might have to give it a look, Eric. You, I might have to, you might have sold me on it. You might have sold me on it. I'll give and it a that, look. Yeah, and this is... This is me. I'm pretty cynical. Yeah, but, um, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm cynical, mate, and I'll own it. <laughs> good stuff, ET. Hey, listen, thanks for coming on, mate. Always good to chat motorsport with you. Uh, enjoy enjoy the bridge house tonight uh, or the tennis, depending which comes first, and we'll catch you again soon, eh? All right. Always a pleasure, Ricardo. Thanks for the time, man. It's SENZ, it is extra time and uh, we're just about out of time actually, coming up to 10 o'clock uh, interesting news out of the UK that uh, at least seems Antonio Conte, speaking of coaches I've been talking about Scott Robertson being appointed the All Blacks coach uh, earlier today it was, uh, Antonio Conte, the Spurs coach Hasn't been officially announced by the club, but apparently he's disappeared back to Italy. <laughs> so uh, it's not going to be long until uh, until Tottenham are looking for a new coach, Joe yeah, I'm not surprised. I was literally, I was just, actually, I wasn't overly focusing when you were talking earlier, Ricardo, because I was looking over your shoulder, staring at the TV, and, showing, and he was just going off at the media, just yelling left and right, and I thought, I was just thinking to myself, I don't think that guy's going to last really long. And then you let me know. I mean, the Spurs are just a mess. I don't think they'll uh, even meet, uh, reach the top four consistently. Consistently, And uh, once Harry Kane goes, I think they're a bit screwed. Yeah. I mean, he's got a year left on his deal. He doesn't want to renew. He wants out. So I think this could well be his last season. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they're doing. They're saying that there's a guy, Ryan Mason, who came through uh, the Spurs Academy as a player and then broke into the Spurs' top side. And then uh, I think he was on loan at Hull, or did it happen at Hull? He got kicked in the head. Like, it was accidental, but he got kicked in the head, and he could never play again. So um, he started taking uh, working in the in the team uh, in the club's youth system, and he's now in charge of the top of the youth teams, and they're going to put him in temporary charge at the age of thirty-one. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. So Ryan Mason looks like he'll be uh, leading Spurs for the rest of the season. Unless they have got something else lined up, but that looks, is the way it looks. Would you be a good coach, you reckon? A good, good football coach? Have you ever coached before? I have done a bit of coaching before. But yeah. Yeah. You're too aggressive? You get I, into it too much? Oh, no, I'm probably the other way around. Probably too... Oh, too passive. You don't want to tell them off. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You do seem like a sweet dad. Yeah. Hey, You're thanks. our girl dad. Thanks. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> no uh, <laughs> this has been Extra Time on SENZ. 
tomorrow morning, don't forget. Uh, Mark Robinson, the head of New Zealand Rugby, on with the breakfast show. Izzy and Kimby for breakfast at 8.05. So tune in there, hear all about the decision to make Razor the coach at this time of year.